Hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's show, we look at how Mondi is navigating the greenwash in the certification of natural fibres. So trying to measure how we uh, manage our forests, the benefits that we have, and in particular land and water use is something that we're keen on. We ask Kimberly Clark why recyclability isn't enough for packaging. Where can we invest in waste management infrastructure to further enable the recovery and the ability to recycle materials? And we discuss our moonshots of the future that can help reimagine sustainability. So, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. ED's content editor Matt Mace here, and if you're listening to us on Friday the 26th of July, then congratulations for making it to day three of the Borisopolis, or Boris Ocalypse? Ocalypse, definitely. Definitely Ocalypse. Okay, um, a, quick out, a quick look out of my window suggests that the UK hasn't devolved into riots, burning buildings and unnecessarily expensive bridges, but it is early days with Boris Johnson as our Prime Minister. Yes, let's be honest, this podcast is meant to be uplifting uh, to those trying to deliver a sustainable future, but right now in the present, it can look pretty bleak, with Boris Johnson, in my opinion, becoming the worst number 10 since William Gallas. Just a little footballing joke to lighten the mood there. Um, As you've already heard, joining me today is our reporter, Sarah George. Sarah, how are you, and are you one of the hundreds of people that have since signed up to support the Lib Dems? Um, well, I'm alive and I'm well, and I haven't switched parties, so those are all three um, good things. But I'm also finding it hard to sleep at night, mainly because of the heat, but also with the niggling feeling that we have a Prime Minister who have said that global warming is caused by the sun um, and not by human activity. Um, although I've been going through Twitter in an attempt to cheer myself up, um, and he has said that he would lie down in front of bulldozers um, to stop a new airport being built in the UK and to stop fracking. So there is a shimmer of hope. Yep, that's very true. And the imagery of him lying down in front of a bulldozer is what's been comforting me, actually, the last few days. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps we're being a, a bit reactionary here. Um, our insider, Sir James, published a piece online recently, a really good piece, um, looking at Johnson's approach to climate change and the environment. And... I mean, it's not all bad. You mentioned the the little stance on perhaps climate denial, but he was the driving force behind uh, London's Eula Zone. Mm. Um, and those pieces were published a few years ago, I should say. He hasn't come up with one in yeah. more than four years. Yeah, exactly. In fact, he's been quite, I don't know, enigmatic around the environment and the climate. It seems to kind of just not dodge it, but just skirt around it quite quickly, which, you know, um, make of that... Uh, what you will. Um, but regardless of Boris, there is some strong policy frameworks uh, in place, um, like net zero. There's been a recent raft of death announcements today. We, we should be in a good place, right, Sarah? I just need some reassurance right now. Well, we've got several long-term bills coming out. The resources and waste strategy is being finalised. The agricultural bill and environment bill um, are both in the works and meant to be with us while ahead of the October 31st. Um, deadline and then let's not forget that Johnson isn't the be-all and end-all of the Conservative Party. Um, There's also the Conservative Environment Network really striving to push this and then aside from just the Tories, several all-party parliamentary groups who have gotten even more vocal about environmental issues recently. Um, The one that I wrote about this week is probably predictably the APPG on fashion and textiles Mm -hmm. um, which has relaunched with a fresh um, sustainability focus so 
never fear the motivation is in there somewhere good uplifting exactly what we needed and and pos- um, politics aside i think we should try and cheer up our listeners because today we're here to talk about oh um earth overshoot day so <laughs> For those who don't know, that's the day that humanity uses up all of the planet's natural resources for the year. And in 2019, this is going to take place on Monday, 29th of July, and that's the earliest this has ever occurred. I apologise for those who thought we were going to go straight to the uplifting stuff there. Uplifted already, Matt. Good. Um, So it's not quite the uplifting tone I was hoping for. Yep, so basically humanity is now at a point where it consumes the resources of 1.7 Earths in in a year, which is... I mean, almost impressive as it is unsustainable. Um, Sarah, Sarah, as someone who is a lot closer to the news, I need another positive spin on this one now as well. (laughs) Um, The positive news is that Earth Overshoot Day is not fixed. Um, And as much as it has moved forwards, I think pretty much every year since it became a thing, I think some years when it was first a thing in the 70s, it stayed the same. Um, That also means that it is movable backwards as well i'd say that that is that is positive yes that's very true um some research does suggest that we can push the date on earth overshoot day back uh, namely by championing energy and efficiency in the built environment that's a real big one um reducing food waste and moving to a circular economy i think that can all be achieved by 2030 as well which um at least to start pushing the date back which mm-hmm. you know 10 years to turn around essentially you know, almost 40 years of environmental degradation. It's not not too bad a spin to have um, on it. And that's good. A nice upward trajectory of positivity for this podcast, um, which I feel like is now a good time to introduce our first interview. Mm-hmm. So for this episode, myself and Sarah, we, we both agreed that it would be a, a good idea to get under the skin of some of the big manufacturers to see how their packaging strategies Warts and all, um, we're starting to align with this need to champion the circular economy, move away from a linear disposal uh, mindset, and ultimately start pushing the date back for Earth Overshoot Day. And I'll be going first this week. You're about to hear me sit down over the phone with uh, the Mundi Group, an international packaging and paper group that employs around 26,000 people and has around about 100 production sites across more than 30 countries. So huge global in scope and whilst predominantly paper-based, the company is also a member of the Ellen McCarr Foundation's new plastics economy and has been very hard to design its way out of plastics in that area. So I sat down with Graham Smith, who is the Innovation and Sustainability Manager for Consumer Packaging, to see not just what they're up to, but how their consumers and customers reactive, and how they thought about their decisions in the sense that what they do today could have some severe and big impacts towards sustainability and the environment in the future if they don't really plan it out properly. So enjoy this chat in full and then join us for the second part of this episode where we're going to be talking to business giant Kimberly Clark and we'll be discussing our sustainability moonshots that can save the world. We are talking to uh, Mondi, uh, the paper-based and flexible plastics packaging and manufacturing company um, that specialises in pulp, paper and plastic film packaging across 30 countries. It also has some science-based targets to work towards as well. So for those who perhaps aren't aware of Mondi, rest assured that they are taking sustainability incredibly seriously. I'm joined on the phone right now by Graham Smith, the Innovation Sustainability Manager for Consumer Packaging. Graham, thank you so much for joining me this morning. No problem. And I suppose a good place to start on this episode is to get a, a very kind of brief 
introduction um, around Mondi and around the the packaging that you guys manufacture. I obviously touched on um, pulp, paper, plastic, but what's what's the current makeup? You know, is it is it more leaning towards paper based packaging? Is plastic still a big part of your business? really good to know and, and in terms of flexible packaging i suppose um I've, I've seen a few of the images on the same image report but on a podcast flexible packaging is quite hard to visualize so so could you give a few examples of, of what flexible packaging is and, and is and is it um does it have any kind of issues when it comes to recyclability And so Mundi uh, joined the, the new plastics economy from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation back in uh, October last year. The commitment, as just as a refresher for myself, uh, is, is, is aims to create a new normal for plastic packaging, um, eliminate single-use plastic materials, um, and increase the amount of reused or recycled plastics in products um, to ensure 100% of it can be reused, recyclable, or composted by 2025. I suppose at first glance, it, it, it was a perhaps a bit odd for a company that is 80% of its makeup in paper-based products to get involved, but it sounds like that commit, uh, that sorry economy would really allow you to solve some of those issues you just mentioned. Absolutely. I mean, uh, joining the global commitment was something that uh, we felt was intrinsic to the Mondi's uh, viewpoint. I mean, if you, you start to look, at, and I think that there's a degree of complacency to an extent where, as I said before, the, the plastic packaging has been developed so much that it's been the go-to material. And you kind of take a step back and say, well, where can we replace plastic packaging with something else that can still do the job? And, and I think that's critical, that you need to make sure that you're uh, replacing it with something that still is appropriate for the application, but as well doesn't have any unintended uh, consequence in doing that. So by having 
having the experience on paper and plastic, I think it gives us a, a broader viewpoint as to the unintended consequences that can happen, but at the same time address them before it gets too far, and hopefully now with the end of life being a, a particular point of focus, mean that we can supply a, a product that's best and fit for purpose. And there's some real kind of heavyweight businesses in, in that commitment, Danone, Unilever, Mars, Pepsi, Co, uh, sure. Coca-Cola Company, L'Oreal. Um, so since, since that launch, have, has Mondi had a chance to really kind of liaise with these businesses and perhaps discuss a bit of best practice? What's, what's been the, I suppose, the internal process um, of the new plastics economy? Well, I think, as I mentioned, there are certain products that we manufacture that we've taken a step back and had a look and said, can we redesign these? Uh, and you mentioned a couple of key fast-moving consumer goods uh, customers there, which we, we do business with in order to try and uh, make them more sustainable. Now, the, the process in doing that is taking a step back, look at the packaging, and in particular look at the technical specification that's required for the article that you're packaging, and trying to right-spec the product. So you try and have a look at the technical specification of the packaging that's being used, assess whether or not that's too great to spec, take a step back from it and try and re-engineer it so that it's more appropriate for a sustainable future. And I think that's, that's some of the key conversations that we're having with our, our FMCG customers at the moment. And it's something that we've found that they are embracing more. They, they realize that they've got to change their approach. They realize that uh, we're changing our approach to fit that. But I think the key thing here is making sure we're doing it in collaboration with each other having a common goal and making sure that we can uh, achieve that together. And I, I want to discuss that common goal, actually. Um, the the commitment was obviously welcomed. It kind of got mainstream media coverage. And, and I think anyone that's kind of serious about sustainability has has had some involvement in that commitment if plastics is an issue to them. Uh, the goal to ensure 100% of the plastic packaging can be reused, recycled, composted by 2025 doesn't necessarily mean that it will be reused, recyclable or composted. Uh, perhaps I'm being a bit simplistic, but plastics to me in terms of recycling is a bit like food waste in the sense that not much of the waste is being driven at a corporate level. I think a lot of the corporates are quite responsible when it comes to it, but a lot of it comes at that post-consumer level, which you mentioned earlier, um, likely because the infrastructure or the collection mechanisms aren't quite there yet. So my question is, it's, it's all well and good getting to 100% recyclable or recycled packaging, but, but what role does business have to play in creating a world where this packaging is actually recycled? That's a great question. So the, the aspects of Mondi doing this on their own can't be done. So the, the collaborative requirements that's needed in order for us to speak to our FMCGs, as we've spoken about, but also the people that manufacture the equipment that do the recycling, people that uh, do the, the sorting and recycling, the collection people, uh, speaking to local governments and councils as well in order to see how they are changing their approach and uh, fundamentally the government as well to make sure that they take this seriously. Uh, and I think that there's a good aspect at the moment in the UK where they're looking at the way in which they're collecting material and there's uh, consul consultations that are going on at the moment in order to harmonise the way in which uh, materials collected. We're looking at appraising the EPR uh, system, the extended producer responsibility element. They're looking at uh, the deposit return scheme and the way in which uh, that's been applied as well. And of course, they're also looking to try and uh, impose some kind of tax on products that don't 
contain 30% recycled content. And I think with those four consultations, and for businesses like ourselves and our competitors and the equipment suppliers, getting involved in that kind of conversation means that the issues that you've suggested can be addressed. Because you're right, making a product easier to recycle is only part of the story. And we need to engage with every person possible to try and influence the, the harmonization and the approach which is required in order to make some kind of stepwise change. Because if we don't do this together, you'll get this fragmented, bitty aspect of, uh, of progress. And, and when you start looking at the uh, targets that a lot of the, the CEOs have, have made and the, the targets that we've stated, when you start looking at a 2025 commitment, we need to make changes now in order to try and get any kind of impact by 2025. So I, I kind of embrace the way in which uh, the UK is dealing with it. There's a lot of countries around Europe as well that have done a similar kind of thing. And, and hopefully by sharing the viewpoints and sharing the successes and failures that they've had, we should kind of get a, a, a good story moving forward that will make real change. That's good to know. And and for for the listeners that are aware of the waste hierarchy, recycling comes just below uh, reuse in terms of, of the best way essentially to kind of design ourselves out of waste. Um, how what, What's Mondi's approach to, to reuse? It's essentially... If it's something to in, that introduces reuse, kind of just changes the business model as a whole. It's less about production, more about um, the circular economy, interacting with consumers to get that packaging back, or interacting with customers to get that packaging back. So, is is, is reuse a big focus for Monday as well? Uh, reuse, we, we have a focus on refill, where uh, you're refilling a product which you're reusing. So there is an element of reuse there. Uh, and I do see the benefit in doing a lot of reuse models. But I think uh, at the very start we started talking about uh, unintended consequences. And when you start looking at reuse, you need to make sure that you're not only looking at the, the life cycle of the product, but the whole system that's in process. So you need to make sure that uh, you take the, the whole holistic approach on the reuse element. Uh, and again, it's making sure that the uh, application and the solution that you apply is fit for purpose. So in some instances, reuse is great, but I think in some instances as well, reuse can be overkill, and you need to reappraise that and make sure that the solution that you're providing is right for the application. That's a really interesting point of view, and I actually want to touch on that holistic viewpoint, the, the life cycle that you mentioned, <clears throat> and, and kind of switch this debate over to the paper aspect of your company. I was reading through the sustainability report. Um, so, seventy-one percent of of the the wood resources is either certified to FSC or PEFC, and seventy-nine percent of the forestry mills you used have been assessed. So, you're you're doing due diligence on that sense. But there was a really interesting um, quote in the sustainability report. That basically, said that um, you know paper-based isn't just about certification. You have to use different tools. And we've already seen some debates amongst NGOs that certification in that area is actually kind of mudding the waters and that it isn't actually doing too much to assist with combating deforestation. So taking that, that life cycle approach to, to your paper packaging, um, how, how are you going beyond certification to, to ensure that an increase in paper-based packaging, perhaps as you move away from plastics, isn't going to contribute to, to land degradation or deforestation? that in general at the moment. So there's a piece of work that we're looking at just now, which is almost hot off the press really, where we're looking at uh, our forestry stewardship 
the way in which we uh, are approaching that. So trying to measure how we uh, manage our forests, the benefits that we have, and in particular land and water use is something that we're keen on. So we're looking to uh, set new standards, set new key performance indicators around that so we can show that the impact of our forestry can actually be beneficial. So we manage them in the best possible way. We show that the biodiversity that we're achieving is something that uh, is beneficial to the planet as much as we're being able to uh, make a, a renewable material from that. So it's, it's, key, it's very key for us and hopefully the standards that we're setting will be seen as a, a new standard for everybody in the future. That's, that's good to know actually because we've seen a lot of businesses move to um, paper-based only and even kind of plant-based materials as an alternative to plastics and when we talk about unintended consequences you know the fact that we've got a rise in population um, and land use is already becoming quite stretched uh, a new standard that can actually impact um, the role of, of packaging on that would be really um, really valuable how how you know how difficult is it as a as a manufacturing company and, and one that specializes in packaging to to weigh up the the life cycles of both plastics and and paper and because there's going to be trade-offs on both and decide which one is best for which application I'm laughing slightly because uh, life cycle analysis, the LTAs, I, I kind of love them and hate them. Uh, they're, they're about the only thing that we have at the moment that we can actually grasp onto firmly and use as a point of reference. However, my, my personal uh, hate of them is purely based on the assumptions that need to be made in order to try and calculate them. Uh, and as I say, they're good and bad, and, and they're something that we do embrace. But we're trying to look past an LTA. So we start to look at uh, the likelihood of something to be recycled. We start to look at the likelihood of it being uh, of leakage into the environment and try to look at uh, the other softer elements that are included in the life cycle of a product where a true LCA wouldn't necessarily pick up. So we're looking at uh, analysis elements at the moment which take LCAs to the next level, look at plastic leakage, look at the, the leakage into the environment, establish how likely it is to happen and use that as part of a process to establish whether or not a package is uh, a package solution is uh, the best for the application required. Sounds like there's uh, a bit of work to do there, but it, it does have its its uses. So I think I understand that that love hate relationship you have with it, uh, Graham. We're, we're pretty much out of time. So just before I, I kind of let you get on the rest of the day, I suppose it's, it would be good just to find out. Well, you know, what's what's Mondi going to be up to uh, for the rest of the year in regards to sustainability? What what what's your main focus at the moment?
collected, can be sorted, can be of a quality that can be used in flexible packaging again, and as I say, completely close that loop. So we're, we're working with uh, key FMCGs at the moment in order to make sure that happens, and hopefully you'll start seeing that on the uh, on the shelves soon. Oh yeah, well I'll certainly uh, be on the lookout for it. Graham, it's, um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today, thank you so much for your time. No problem, anytime. So, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Graham from Mondi and do let us know if you agree with him about the life cycle assessments. So Sarah, you're, you're this episode's beacon of positivity at the very least um, and one of this month's most read pieces on the ED website has been written by you and was titled Inside Kimberly Clark's Plastics Packaging Strategy. Care to provide a kind of too long didn't read for the listeners? Uh, TLDR, um, most of Kimberly Clark's packaging um, is actually made from forestry products, so paper or cardboard, um, and most of its pa- plastics packaging was already recyclable when the UK Plastics Pact was founded. Um, so that has put it in a bit of a different position, a bit of a different starting point, I'd say, to a lot of the other signatories of the pact, particularly in consumer goods and health and beauty um, care to this piece is exploring how they got going from that starting point and what approach they're taking. I'd definitely give it give it a read. There's no excuse for it to be too long. Didn't read. If oh you yeah, no. Packaging or consumer goods. The very next line of my script was to make sure they do go to the website and uh, read that one. Um, and so this next interview is is pretty much just a direct follow up to that piece, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so it's a little bit more insight on some of what was raised. Um, specifically around avoiding greenwash, as you mentioned earlier. Okay, great. And who are we going to be uh, speaking with in this interview? Yep, so we're talking to Casey's Global Sustainability Lead for Products and Packaging. Um, His name is Daniel, Daniel Locke, um, and he came into this role from a packaging and materials technology. Okay, so um, he knows his stuff. Yes. Okay, great. Well, um, let's let's get started. Let's listen to that interview now in full. So um, for the eagle-eyed among you who have been keeping up with our inside um, big business plastic strategy on on the ED website, we'll have noticed that the latest one that I covered was um, Kimberly Clark, so the big multinational consumer goods brand um, that everyone will know from brands like Andrex, Kleenex and Kotex. Um, And I was really fortunate to get to speak to their global sustainability lead for products and packaging, Dan Locke, who has done the honour of coming back on um, today to speak on this special um, plastic packaging themed episode. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me on the discussion today. Really looking forward to talking over a bit more on our strategy and and who Kimberly Clark is and what we're working on towards... uh, our plastics and products uh, initiatives and, and really driving change and forward-thinking mindset here. So, so thanks again for having me on the call. No, thanks for coming on the call. I realise we have a bit of a time difference seeing as you're based over in the States. Um, so always good to get a hold of, of, um, of people from outside of the UK market, really. Um, and something that we talked about the last time we met but that I didn't get the chance to include in the piece was speaking about sort of your role um, and background, which was in packaging and materials technology rather than CSR, sustainability or energy. So I just wanted to ask what, what, are you, what your current role involves around, around packaging and, and how you got there in the first instance. Yeah, happy to share some details here. And, and it's obviously not the, the traditional pathway that, that most uh, employees may take, but I think that it's added great value and, and learnings for me as as I've grown. 
grown into the, the role I'm in now. And uh, as an overview of, you know, kind of my expertise and background, it really started in packaging design and, and materials. So uh, I went to school and studied at Clemson University in South Carolina and uh, studied their, their packaging and materials program and started at KC working for our uh, KC professional business, which mm-hmm. is our B2B or business-to-business function, and led our design for packaging on products such as Kleenex and Scott um, and uh, very familiar brands that, uh, that, that most are uh, recognized on, on your shelves. And uh, from a design perspective, it was really exciting uh, taking part with our engineering teams and focusing on how we can uh, be more efficient and innovate and, and truly drive change as it relates to packaging. Um, but as I was coming in to work every day, I realized that uh, I wanted to have uh, more of a higher purpose and focus and the sustainability space was really growing at the time, and it, it, I, I began to pay more attention to what was going on in the outside world and external landscape, and I knew that it was something that I wanted to get more involved with. And so um, I, I uh, began to connect further with through design and what I could lead within my current role to drive more sustainable packaging materials. So I was really driving it at the point of attack. and. Um, through that, I made several connections within the sustainability environment and decided to take uh, on a new opportunity and, and lead some strategy development work for the company. So I, I joined and, and transitioned to sustainability strategy and, and did that for three years, which was really thinking out beyond and helping us develop our sustainability 2022 program, which is geared up towards Kimberly Clark's 150th anniversary. And uh, beyond that, uh, transition to our product and packaging lead. So as I look at uh, areas I I focus on and and lead now, it's it's really how can I connect my expertise in packaging design and connect that to Kimberly Clark's vision to lead the world in essentials for a better life. I don't think we can achieve that vision without thinking about the materials that we're using and, and how we're focusing on design and really looking at the full life cycle of our products and packaging. So yeah, I think it really brings an exciting edge to the role um, and, and I get to focus on my passion and love for materials design while also ensuring that I'm driving and focusing on environmental and social issues at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been a great experience for me. No, I mean, it sounds like you came into the role at a time when this conversation was was really kicking off for, for the first time, um, which is something we touched on the last time we spoke. Um, but I'd say that compared to some of the other companies we spoke to, you guys are starting from a, a slightly different starting point in that I know that most of the company's packaging portfolios already either, in the UK at least, either made of card or paper or if it's plastics, that, that level sits at 90% recyclability already in the UK. So how has that, that change in conversation worked from, for, for KC based on, on that specific starting point? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And when we think about our, our current materials and, and packaging, KC is already you know, pretty far along as it relates to designing for recyclability. Um, we definitely have some progress and work left that we need to do. Um, but, but as we think about where we've come from and where we're going, I, I think that it, it helps to start with kind of our foundation and, and, and what are some of 
our priorities over the over time. And when I think back, uh, materials efficiency and reduction has always been foundational, I believe, to our programs, and it, and it still is today. So thinking about how we can be more efficient with our materials and reduce the amount of, uh, let's say, plastics in our in our packaging or products is still going to be something that we're working on and, and focused moving forward within our programs. Uh, but as we transition into this new mindset, then extending our zero-waste mindset beyond our uh, manufacturing footprint and how we can reduce materials is thinking differently about what goes into them and the design for using more recycled materials or uh, using more reusable materials. And I think that that shows great progress and we've proven success that we can drive to zero waste from our manufacturing footprint. So today we are 96% manufacturing waste diversion from landfill globally, and that's across more than 80 sites, and we're in uh, more than 175 countries worldwide. And, and so if you think about the, the breadth of what that includes, that's a great deal of learnings that we can apply towards our products and packaging. And so I think that through those learnings, we can really shift the conversation and focus on our products and packaging and how we can begin to drive that, that post-consumer waste solutions further. Great. So we've looked at the multiple ways in which you guys are coming at this. So that's not only from materials efficiency and recyclability, but also reuse um, and the use of recycled content. Um, but just doing that doesn't actually mean that the products and packaging will be used in the way you want to at the end of life, right? So recycled or recyclable doesn't mean it will be recycled. So what do you see the role um, of, of your business as KC in, in educating for, for behaviour change and for responsible end-of-life use? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's really two aspects of that that Kimberly-Clark will look at moving forward. And, and the first element, I believe, is just as you said, it's increasing awareness and educating of our consumers and what role they play in the process of recycling. So just uh, designing a material to be recyclable isn't enough. So one of the ways that we do that today is through our partnership with the OnPack Recycling Label, or OPRL in the UK which is really about creating a standardized and consistent labeling system so that way the consumer can easily recognize it and know the best way to recycle or manage materials in a responsible way. And I think that the second piece that we do here is where can we invest in waste management infrastructure to further enable the recovery and the ability to recycle materials. So not just designing for recyclability, but further enabling the ability to collect or recycle materials uh, along with the education of consumers to ensure that our materials are recovered post-use is very important. So moving forward, I think those are both two great examples of, of ways that Kimberly-Clark can address this issue. Mm. And I know you mentioned earlier that obviously people in the UK and US will know about Kimberly-Clark, but I think you mentioned, was it something like 175? countries that you guys work across um so i i wanted to see how how this education piece and this infrastructure improvement works when you've got to work across um economies that will have different cultures different different governments and and specific challenges so could you give some examples of, of how that works 
Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the programs I just mentioned was the on-pack recycling label, and that's just one, I'd say, uh, of a few uh, recycling schemes that, that Kimberly Clark supports and participates in. So other examples we have through joining and helping as a founding partner of Red Cycle, which is a program in Australia led through Red, uh, Replus and Red Group. And essentially what this is is a program focused on uh, collection of recycled uh, films, so flexible packaging. And so the, the cool thing about this program is they started with end market and the consumers in mind. So mm. how can they easily reach and, can, and create consistent uh, standardized labeling, but also identify end market demands for materials once they're collected and recovered. So they worked with a partner, uh, Replis, that I mentioned to create uh, elements like playground equipment or park benches or secondary plastic uh, alternatives. So that way when the materials like flexible packaging from our products, Kleenex, Huggies, or uh, Scott, were collected, they could um, be recycled into new goods. And so that's, that's one example in our Asia-Pacific region. We also have a program called, called Love NZ for soft plastic recycling in New Zealand. Um, and we have other partnerships in uh, India, for example, which is obviously uh, developing an emerging economy where we partner with an organization called Waste Ventures. And what we do there is we incentivize the collection of flexible film recovery. And so if you think about the network in uh, India for recovering and collection of materials, that's very different than the UK or the US. And so they have informal waste pickers where one in 100 urban dwellers may make a living on the collection or sorting or processing of waste. And this informal waste picker sector, we've incentivized through Waste Ventures to collect the flexible films because in particular, uh, the waste pickers focus on packaging goods of, of higher value. So if you think about your more durable, rigid uh, beverage containers or plastic bottles, those will be predominantly collected and, and sorted today pretty regularly. But if you think about flexible films, those are often the materials that are left behind and seen as lower value. So through incentivizing the collection of those, we ensure that uh, more materials are brought into that collection scheme and, and, and turned into a, a valuable secondary use. So I think there's multiple ways you can tackle it. Obviously, partnerships like that with Waste Ventures is really important, or with uh, the Replis and, and Red Cycle example we gave as well. So really creating those pro uh, partnerships to go along with the programs will help enable you to be more successful. No, I think a big part of the theme of this episode, which we're talking about, is which is um, navigating greenwashing packaging, is m making sure you address that social piece as well. So really good to hear about that, Daniel. But I think that's all we have time for at the moment. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to dial in. Yeah, thank you again for having me and look forward to continuing the conversation and continuing to progress our programs further. So there you have it, two companies who have waded into the plastics debate but have also highlighted the, I suppose, the intricacies, uh, the issues and the need to act for around paper-based um, packaging as well. Um, and I have literally no subtle segue onto this next bit, <laughs> but over the last 50 years, it seems humanity has gone from putting a man on the moon to Brexit, 
Trump, Boris now, and Love Island. All worldwide phenomena in their own right, and only one of them would I say I actually agree with. No prizes for guessing which it's one. It's Love Island. Yeah, of course. Bring absolutely them back from the moon. <laughs> Hashtag Team Ovi. Um, but yes, uh, 50 years ago, arguably one of humanity's greatest feats took place. A mix of unrivaled imagination and technological excellence saw Apollo 11, um, the space flight, land, on the, land humans on the moon for the first time. Commander Neil Armstrong and Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin went down in the history books, and with climate change now starting to wreck this planet, some actually view space travel as a last gasp solution to the climate crisis. <coughs> Jeff Bezos. <coughs> exactly. Uh, much maligned Jeff Bezos as well, according to some of the work staff at Amazon. Um, so the moon landing took place on July the 20th, so we're a few, day, a few days out on that, but to mark the occasion... I thought it fitting that Sarah and I offer our own sustainability moonshots uh, that could help mitigate the worst climate impacts, reverse environmental degradation, and appease the growth in human population and consumption. Essentially, if you probably ask someone in the 50s whether a landing man on the moon was possible, they think it was, you know, um, a bit pointless to even try. Although, I don't know if you saw that survey this week, but I think 9% of the, the human population just don't see the point in going back to the moon, mm. um, which, you know, each to their own. Um, and so that's the aim of this last segment, is to come up or at least view with these sustainable innovations or solutions that are perhaps some way off, but much like the moon landing, if they happen, would kind of mark uh, a kind of footnote in the history of humanity as, as a time where we actually managed to provide radical uh, sustainable solutions. Sounds really easy, right? And to prove how easy it is, I, I think I'll let Sarah go first while I think. Um, this was a really hard task for me because, as you know, I write the Innovations of the Week yeah, Roundup, so I have a barrage of innovations in my email inbox at any one time. Um, but something that I've seen that's both, as you say, quite a long way off, but transformational and is getting talked about a lot and very seriously by the UN is floating cities. Mm -hmm. um, so the built environment is obviously one of the biggest areas that will need change if we're going to meet all of our climate targets and keep people happy, healthy and safe. Um, so the idea of floating cities responds to multiple issues, in my opinion, which is why I chose them. Um, so it responds both to sea level rise, unsustainable land use, um, um, air, air pollution um, and population growth and where that population will actually sit in the future. We know, know it's going to be more urbanised than it is now. Um, but it also deals with the social issues such as social inequality, um, lost sense of community and poor health and wellbeing and lifestyle choices as well. Um, so at the moment there aren't any floating cities in the world, nor has there been a prototype um, built, not a physical prototype anyway, but one of the forerunners in this discussion has developed like a 3D computer okay. model, um, and they're called BIG. It's an architecture firm that is an arm of terrace architecture, um, and the model consists of, of these islands that are in clusters of six. You have to have a minimum of six, but it's infinitely upscalable, so you could have anything from six to 360 to 360 mm. million of these islands. Um, they're made from bamboo and they're designed for marine life to live underneath them oh, really? safely and they're all designed with inbuilt renewable power arrays um, as, as well. On the safety side and the practicalities they've been designed to withstand category 5 hurricanes, um, minor tsunamis and to support not only housing but bigger bits of infrastructure including farms 
um, office blocks, schools, state state buildings, um, entertainment and retail complexes. They obviously wouldn't have the kind of transport infrastructure that we see now mm. because they would be smaller and there wouldn't be a tube, needless to say. No, I mean, transport's a, a huge emitter of, of greenhouse gas emissions anyway, so perhaps... Perhaps you know. I'm guessing I can I can picture people cycling on these. Yeah, on these the islands. idea is for people to walk, cycle, mm. use shared mobility of, of another kind. And do we have any like rough time frames or when big is is gonna whether they'll have a, a perhaps an actual proof of concept or? Um, I think I'm not sure about the proof of concept stage, but I know that the UN is debating how best to fund okay. um, this sort of thing. So I'd say we'd expect a big funding announcement in the next couple of years. Oh, really good to know. The UN. Um, really good to know that. And, and actually mine's quite similar to yours, Sarah. So I, I've, I've gone for something similar whereby we essentially use um, land or at least space that is previously uninhabitable to, to really design ourselves out of uh, the climate crisis. Uh, mine's more based on the farming and crop growing aspect mm-hmm. um, of it rather than civilization. Um, so I'm more thinking of like projects and businesses like Sundrop Farms. So they're, they're kind of known for improving agricultural technologies so that fewer finite resources are required and that these farms can essentially be located um, in areas that otherwise just aren't used. Um, and not just Sundrop Farms, but we've seen lots of examples on the ED site of uh, underground farms, there's a few going on in uh, Clapham, I think, or um, a few kind of underground bunkers that have been converted into farms um, for for crops. We've also got vertical farming starting to become a, come really taken off. Um, you've also got bigger scale um, stuff, or more about kind of reforestation. So the Sahara project, uh, the Sahara Forest project, um, was launched I think back in like 2012. Um, aiming to produce 130 tonnes of organic vegetables annually from seven acres of desert land. Um, and at full scale, that project could potentially cover almost 500 acres of, of land, which otherwise hasn't or can't be used to, to grow um, crops. Engineers have also designed these kind of saltwater cooling systems for vegetable greenhouses um, across deserts as well. Um, and ultimately, as, as population uh, continues to rise and land use becomes more scarce, it will be these type of innovations that allow us to fertilise, grow and live on kind of harsh climates like deserts or out in the mm-hmm. sea, as, as you've mentioned, which I think, you know, tackling population growth is, you know, when you when you hear everyone talk about the climate crisis right now and, and how the need to alleviate change, I don't think many people are starting to factor in population growth into into that crisis just yet. I think, no. I think for the wider public, they're probably not there at the conversation, whereas no. our audience are probably acutely no. aware of that. Even so, there's definitely population movement, I'd say, mm. is less of a concern. Forum for the Future did a good blog on this yeah. for us, but I don't think even a lot of sustainability professionals realise just how many people are going to be moved. Yeah, exactly. So they have it. Those are our moonshots for sustainability. So um, if and when they do come reality, I'd like to think we get some sort of royalty bonuses from it. Um, I need to figure out the contracts for that one. Um, and although we're pretty much out of time for this episode, I'd like to leave uh, the listeners with a, a quote from Neil Armstrong, um, one of the first men on the moon, that outlines why I think humanity can step up to the challenge of combating climate change, why humanity can deliver a sustainable future, and why even when it's too hot or too bleak outside, humanity can always dig deeper to deliver. So, I'm not going to do an accent, that'll just <laughs> be a bit insulting, I think. I think we're going to the moon, Armstrong said because it's in the nature of human being to face challenges. It's by the nature of his deep inner soul. 
We're required to do these things just as salmon swim upstream. Which I think is a nice, nice quote to end up. And we'll be meeting you even further upstream next time. But until then, it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.